Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9Fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield leverage loans and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market, with US editor Will Cage Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today. And we'll be getting the inside scoop on the AFMI Frankfurt seminar on high yield and leveraged loans from a speaker, discussing recent green bond trends in Biopharma and Miller Homes and discussing the impact of inflation on the Q2 pipeline. But first, the Levfin wrap. Issuance continues to look weak in the wake of the Russia and Ukraine conflict. Bonds are finally back in action, with Miller Homes breaking the quiet last week, heralding the way for La Liga's debt financing, 850 million euros of SSNs and FRNs. Less than 500 million euros makes up the remainder of Europe's current HY volume, with 345 million euros in senior secured FRNs from B3 rated Biopharma and 150 million euros in senior secured notes from Europcar. Loans once again are where the party's at this week, albeit it is a subdued party. Recommit are due for Refresco's 3.4 billion euro equivalent TLB today in sterling USD and euros. Price talk for the 1.53 billion euro TLB equivalent is currently at E plus 425 BIPs with a 99 OID, while the USD tranche, also 1.53 euro equivalent, is also talked at Sofra plus 425 BIPs and a 99 OID. A sterling 340 million euro equivalent tranche is talked at Sonia plus 525 BIPs with a 98 OID. The deal so far has divided opinion, with pro-Refresco lenders noting the beverage manufacturer's large-scale history of successful M&A and management continuity, while anti-Refresco crusaders point to weak Q1 results alongside difficult docs and confusion over interest coverage. AVS is the second and final borrower this week, in market with a 100 million euro add-on that will be fungible with previous TLBs to pay E plus 375 BIPs. The Triton-backed business, which is now calling itself the Workzone Safety Group, is currently offering an OID of 97 to 97.5. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up. Today, I'm going to be speaking with legal analyst Alice Hollian, who we're lucky enough now to be able to call a professional speaker. Thank you so much for being with us today, Alice. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Last week, Alice spoke at the Frankfurt Seminar for High Yield and Leverage Finance in Europe on the Hot Topics in Leverage Finance panel. She spoke alongside moderator Harden Henderson and Matthias Toke of Baker McKenzie, Dominic Ashcroft of Goldman Sachs, Edward Drayton of BlackRock and Ralph Betts of Bridgepoint. So Alice, the first question I had for you was what was the mood like at the conference? Um, I think everyone was sort of pleased and excited uh, not to be presenting behind a screen and actually have that in-person event after Covid and I guess in light of the events in Ukraine, there's this sort of eagerness to um, jump out of secondary and get back into primary. Amazing. And on your panel, uh, was there anything that jumped out at, 
at you that was interesting? I mean, it was great to hear the perspectives from both the sell side and, and buy side on sort of the recent events, especially with the wheels um, starting to spin on primary. It was definitely interesting to see how the market participants will, I guess, traverse this this difficult landscape, you know, with inflationary pressure, you know, harming the corporate margins and earnings um, and sort of the rising price of oil. That's also another, you know, inflationary driver. And then you've got the uncertainty of interest rates rising and all these knock-on effects of the Ukraine war, like the imposition of sanctions. So, as you know, the majority of the seminar, as you can imagine, focused on the impact of these aspects on the Levfin space. Amazing. And were there any trends we should watch out for for the rest of 2022? Uh, there was a lot of discussion around the restructuring landscape um, in 2022, particularly after, you know, that insolvency wave that never came after COVID. And I guess coming out of COVID, I think there was a sort of general surprise that there has been limited restructuring activity. And that was mostly down to easy access to sort of low cost capital, you know, strong consumer demand, but also, you know, private equity dry powder that fueled those high levels of M&A activity in 2021, but this obviously just like dropped off slightly in in 2022. and then you also had the liquidity from the direct government support of, of businesses. This is now met with the challenges presented by the Ukraine war. Um, so, you know, rising raw material costs, the supply chain disruption and the sanctions. But also, as we're hopefully you know, seeing the back of COVID, you also have the increased corporate debt levels and the necessity to repay those COVID loans that will start to put a lot of pressure on companies. So I think sort of the, the general theme is, you know, to, to expect to see increasing financial distress, but also perhaps not as broad um, and far reaching as you'd expect. Um, and there's also sort of a big focus um, of the sem- seminar was on the dynamics between direct lending versus sort of more traditional lending. So the direct met lending market has continued to grow and we're seeing more and more deals go to the direct lending market that would have historically gone to the syndicated market. And it's sort of proven um, itself to be this important adjunct to the traditional leveraged loan market. And, you know, and be more nimble and more creative about responding to the unexpected situations that have arisen. It has delivered consistent premium sort of returns over, over liquid debt. And the covenants are starting to look like those in the syndicated loan market and the high yield bonds, because historically direct lenders have been more sensitive to certain documentary provisions and accepted less covenant flexibility than the syndicated market. Um, But direct lenders have shown this increasing willingness to accept more flexibility. And this is particularly the case for the stronger credits and you know, pandemic and now the war in Ukraine has like further accelerated this trend as markets are more volatile and sponsors are wary of that syndication risk. So, you know, the direct lending market has proved its durability. Again, in, in the seminar, there's this talk of this sort of peaceful coexistence with the banks. So sponsors are increasingly dual tracking a syndicated and direct lending track in the, the current environment. So there, were, there will be a lot of eyes on these trends in the direct lending space in the future. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG segment. Today, we've got the lovely ESG analyst, Jack David, with us. Thanks very much for speaking to us today, Jack. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me on. So, Jack, what's been the general trends of late in green bonds? Okay, yeah, I mean, um, just generally, I suppose, ESG instruments... Uh, hailed as the fastest growing asset class 
um, but we've seen some drop off in 2022. Green bond issuance in particular slowed in the first quarter of 22 by 35 percent over 2021. Um, and global economic uncertainty, rising interest rates, and of course the war in Ukraine uh, has led to this downturn in, in its popularity. Uh, as a higher credit quality asset class, uh, it's sensitive to these changes in interest rates. However, in Europe, at least we've seen sustainability linked bonds retain some more popularity. Uh, they were a very fast growing uh, asset class last year and, and over 2020 um, and they have slowed uh, and they've had a decrease of 23% in the first quarter uh, but in the context of the U Ukraine crisis um, this is considerably less than in, in green bonds. Um, European issuers ha do have a preference of sustainably linked bonds these days they don't, uh, they don't ring fence proceeds uh, for green activities SLBs were especially prominent in high yield, uh, and in 2021, they made up 40% of all uh, sustainability-linked bond issuance. In 2022, we haven't seen any issuance since the war broke out in Ukraine. Uh, we have seen one um, sustainability-linked bond in high yield in the US, which was Novelax. Okay, nice. So now we've got a little bit of bond issuance coming in with Biopharma and with Miller Homes. What are the trends that you're seeing in these deals? Um, yeah, so I mean, with both of them, we, we don't see particularly strong ESG reporting. Uh, this makes it difficult to assess. Um, and this is a definite pain point for investors. Uh, with Miller Homes, the reporting is fragmented across various um, annual reports and sustainability reports from, from various years. Um, they do have a commitment to reduce CO2 emissions by 80% by 2031. But this uh, target uh, lacks any detail and without any historic performance, it's quite hard to assess um, this target and their progress towards this goal. So notably in 2021, 60% of development uh, for Miller Homes was on land that's not that has not yet been built on. So this includes open country. This has led to a, multiple local media outlets and local activists raising concerns uh, related to things like protection of trees, pollution, uh, the energy planning of these homes and wildlife corridors. Uh, in the case of uh, developments in Cheltenham and Bruce Hill, these development plans for Miller Homes were actually rejected. What about regulation? Uh, for home builders, there are steep CO2 reduction targets that have been put in place uh, and this has seen some pushback from home builders uh, just when they got to grips with uh, building assessment requirements in relation to cladding. And what about on Biopharma? Again on Biopharma, uh, performance is quite hard to measure. Uh, they don't have very strong reporting uh, and they don't have many targets or any ESG targets in place. Uh, so notably with them, there's increasing EU regulation around plastic packaging and there's even some specific to the pharmaceutical industry on reducing packaging size. I've heard that we've got some incredible improvements to the website. Is there anything that you'd like to plug from 9fin today? There is actually, Kat. Um, so we've had some, uh, some additions to the 9fin platform. We now have... Uh, data related to sustainability linked bonds and loans uh, 
available, which means you'll be able to track things like KPIs, SBTs attached to these to this stat, uh, total coupon step up, test dates, a number of other metrics across uh, all the companies that we cover. Next up, we have the deep discussion where we discuss a topic a little bit more deeply. Today with me, I have the lovely Laura Thompson. She's a loans reporter with me. Always a pleasure. And senior reporter Owen Sanderson, who today I might announce is a Twitter star. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for that wonderful introduction, Kat. How does it feel to break 3,000? Well, I'd like to thank, uh, first of all, my mum, my cat, uh, my daughter. I couldn't have done it without them. So, Laura, you recently put out a report on Q1 uh, with a little bit of crystal ball gazing into Q2. What were the headline results from your report? What are buy-siders saying about Q2. Yeah, totally. So the headline really is that inflation is going to be the decider for credits that come to the market from now on. And what we're going to see, so say, both buy side and sell side, is a real division in terms of pricing and the kind of protections that buy siders are getting along the lines of how um, exposed a credit is to inflation. So people are saying maybe as much as 75 basis points in between those safe, stable credits that the CLO heard, to quote one banker, mm-hmm. will flock to versus the uh, more challenged ones, once again, along the lines of inflation, um, that maybe a differentiated buy-sider might turn the head towards. The counter that we hear from lenders themselves is that they're all becoming much more risk-averse as we go into, yeah, across the year with, with all these different pain points that we're all very aware of. Um, and will that pricing differentiator actually be enough to get people on board if this is a name that is really, really exposed to inflationary pressures? I did hear one banker say that the divergence between those heavily affected credits and those unaffected credits might be closer to 50 basis points. What do you think of that? I suppose it all comes down to uh, the individual names, but we've heard as wide as 100 basis points could come in between and, you know, kind of four points on the, on the OID. Uh, maybe this is a bit of uh, a sell-side spin, but I think the buy-side as well expect that there should be some real compensation. People are talking about how there needs to be something of a reset in the market in terms of pricing, in terms of um, documentation to accommodate for this, this new riskier environment that we find ourselves in. And pricing has changed throughout um throughout the q1 it went from around average 400 basis points in january to 475 by the time we got through march but that's already ticking back down and the deals that have come to market in april have tightened from, from an average of 466 price talk to 435 at closing so lenders are not actually able to maintain the higher um, margins that they were hoping they would get to accommodate them here. And the fear is that actually this is going to keep growing tighter and tighter to January sort of prices quite quickly. Owen, what are your thoughts? I think the Refresco um, talk, uh, which came out um, Wednesday afternoon, is very illustrative of what Laura was saying. Uh, They started, I think, reasonably reasonably wide, haven't got the figure in front of me, but here we are at 45 and 99, which is um, probably only a little back of, of where Refresco might have been uh, pre-war. It's, you know, it's B2, it's B, B+, very, very well-liked um, credit, so that that might not be completely 
uh, replicable in, in more challenged situations, but it's a, it's a very much down the middle of the fairway market barometer type thing. And yeah, those those levels are really closing in to, to those pre-war levels. Owen, are there any deals that you see in the forward deal pipeline that you would be worried about getting over the line based on inflationary pressures? I think the question with inflation is, uh, does it subside once the raw material cost things pass, pass through the figures? Um, that's a very live debate in the central banks. We're, we're obviously not rate strategists around here, so I'm not going to give my uninformed speculations on that. But um, if we can do a raw material pass-through and not lead to wage inflation, then I'd have thought situations like Morrison's actually come out looking looking okay. But clearly, if there is an inflationary wage spiral, then, then the larger employers, um, such as a big supermarket chain, would, would have problems. I wanted to ask you, Laura, as well, how much you think inflation will impact those big deals that we know are coming, such as Morrison's and Unilever Tea? Yeah, definitely, because these are such big deals. They've been coming for, for so long now. Um, <laughs> they're always front and centre people's minds and front and centre for being the kind of names that are really impacted by rising food costs and, and so on and so forth. Um, lenders say that, that bankers need to have very, very good answers to how these companies, these two companies specifically, are dealing with inflationary pressures um, before they can get comfortable getting on board and giving what um, large deals these are expected to be. That's quite some work that bankers are going to have to do because, especially with Morrison's, with a large sterling tranche, you can't have too many lenders actually turn their backs in order to get that through. The pool of lenders just isn't large enough. So I expect that banks will be working quite hard through the Q1 numbers where the inflationary pressure is really starting to show to give good answers and, and robust plans for how lenders can get comfortable there. So there's obviously a big tranche of companies that are very resilient to inflation and that's uh, tech deals. Owen, You've been covering a couple of those recently. What What's going on there? I've been doing lots of work on the Delivery Hero uh, financing that came out um, just before Easter, um, I believe. It's it's a very interesting deal, um, being a negative EBITDA company. Um, but Delivery Hero is enormous, uh, something like 12 billion market cap before the announcement of that. So sticking a 1 billion... Um, also, term loan in there shouldn't kill the company, even if on traditional credit metrics it's it's a total joke. Um, the deal went very well. Um, Apollo took down the euro tranche. It would be lovely to see a syndicated euro piece in, in the future from similar high-growth um, tech firms. Uh, lots of them are generally US-based, but usually have European operations. So it'd be really nice if that kind of financing could come to the euro market, add some great diversification to the existing sort of credit base that we have. Apollo clearly snapped it up, uh, but it'd be nice for everyone else to get a look in. The pool of borrowers isn't huge. Um, You need to be large and you need to not be making any money and need to be growing very quickly. Um, So it is is a bit limited, but a really interesting trend, um, I think and it would be excellent to see that deal followed. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud9Fin. Many thanks to Alice, to Jack, to Owen and to Laura, and of course to you too, listener. Tune in for the US edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.